Welcome to Season 6 of Business Book Talk. Every week, we have a business book author talk about their book and discover why they wrote it. The conversations are casual in tone, but we try and dig a bit deeper into the subject of the book and discover the author's background and their core ideas. I'm sure you'll like this week's book, so let's get started. Hey everybody, it's Bob again, and I've got The Culture Engine, a framework for driving results, inspiring your employees, and transforming your workplace. And I've got Chris Edmonds on the line today. Chris, thanks for coming on the show. Bob, I so appreciate the opportunity. I'm certainly excited about culture and helping leaders make theirs better, so we're going to have a delightful conversation. <laughs> Let's um, let's start with the word culture. I know, oh God, ABC. But really, <laughs> a lot of people don't get it. I mean, yep. in, and not in the like a culture is an organization. Da, da, da. It's way more than that. It's kind of like where brand is way more than a logo. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. let's dig down a bit. How would you define um, culture? Culture is, in my opinion, um, a combination of the way people treat each other, the kind of beliefs that people have, how they act on those beliefs, um, the, the, the perceptions of customers, you know, are they friend or foe? That's some interesting kinds of beliefs. And it drives all kinds of interesting practices, which, to be honest, most leaders don't know much about culture. If they see things, they don't They've never been trained to look at culture. Um, and, and so culture is a bit dynamic. There's a lot of moving parts. And, and, and what we'll talk about with, with kind of the, an approach to give leaders something tangible, something rather practical in, in starting to pay more attention, greater attention to the culture, the health of their culture, I really go to a space of, of how are people treating each other? So what are the values that you have in place? And then how do we get those values into a form where you can measure them? Now, culture is not values. But values very much defines the culture of an organization. So I think we found uh, we found an avenue here that can help. Well, you know, it, it's interesting because, you know, I, I think one of the biggest things an organization has to do to improve their culture is just be conscious that there is such a thing. You know, <laughs> a lot of people, they'll be in a company, they've been there forever, maybe it's the guy that started it, has no idea that there is this culture and it may be completely different than what he perceives it. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I think that's a huge part of, of you know, managing the, the concept of culture as well as the ability to recognize it in all its different permutations because you know there's going to be a C-suite culture, there's going to be an overall culture, but then there's going to be like the coffee room culture and the way the guy drives the truck culture. And you know a lot of the 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 big CEOs that we have on the show and chatting with, the ones that are really connected are the guys that go down into the mailroom and down there into the sales room and Inter, uh, interact with those different cultures. So when they're back at the C-suite culture, they can represent the other cultures. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it, and that ability to invest some time and energy in that to really observe 
with one's own ears, with one's own eyes and in those conversations because there's some interesting uh, cultural things that can happen with C-suite because you can begin to depend upon kind of the scouts that you have and and those scouts may not be as in touch. They may have their own agendas. You know, it happens in families, it happens in organizational cultures. So you kind of got to pay attention to the quality of interactions, the quality of the work environment. And you're exactly right. You can have a, a sales function that has a very different culture than than the broader organizational culture. There may be a, a number of different, even kind of service cultures in place, and they can actually compete, which which is is confusing. Or, can, <laughs> or, or countermand each other. Absolutely so. Absolutely so. So it's and it's interesting, Bob, because my experience is, and I'd love your insights on this. Most of the senior leaders that I speak to are not aware. Of the, the of their cultures, kind of operating norms. They're they're unaware of how powerful the culture is to drive behavior, and their focus is primarily. And God love them, all of us. I was a manager for for twenty plus years. We we've been trained to focus upon results. So that's what's comfortable. That's what our role models, many of our role models did. And, and so we're, we're, we kind of hang there and we assume that if we invest our time and energy in getting people to apply their skills, everything's going to be great. Service is going to be great. Uh, the work environment's going to be safe and God forbid inspiring. And that's not true. It's not true. Well, it's if everything's uh, rosy up here and we've got good relationships up here in C-suite, why the heck can't anybody else have the same thing? And mm-hmm. guys, it's a different world. I mean, it, it's like comparing, uh, here we are in Papua New Guinea, chatting with some natives. They're very cool. I love the way that they, they harmonize with nature. And then we go to New York Central Park. Why isn't it the same? <laughs> so, well, yeah. good God. Come on, look at the difference. I always go to a place of having leaders reflect on their best bosses, because what's very interesting is those best bosses didn't just exclusively focus on getting X out the door. It was as much, if not more, of we don't tolerate yelling and screaming. We don't tolerate cussing. We don't tolerate setting your buddy up to fail or stabbing people in the back. There were rules. And if you didn't like the rules, you could leave, because <laughs> if you were going to stay these are the rules. And, and it's so interesting because there's such commonalities when, when leaders start to look back at their great bosses and it's like, yeah, it was all about sharing information. It was about cooperating. It was about being seamless, which meant we all had to communicate very, very heavily to make sure the handoffs were done well and we didn't screw up. It was, it's so fun. And then it's, it's how, how big a gap then, how big a jump are we making between how managers, leaders perform today in your organization and how your great bosses did. It may not be a big jump, but if it's even a 10% shift, that can have a huge difference in people's engagement, people's commitment, people's willingness to solve a problem, not just point it out. It's pretty cool. I mean, I remember when I was younger going into meetings and I'd have a ton of ideas. And then I remember going to one organization. Every time I came up with an idea, the guy said, great idea. You now own that. (laughs) And uh, we'd like a report next Wednesday. And I only did it twice after that. And was like, oh, hang on. There are repercussions. There's responsibilities with ideas. But that's maturity 
uh, of your of your marketing and uh, not, well, not even marketing of your managers and the people in your organization. If they have an idea, that's fantastic. You're empowered to to bring it up, but also you have to own it. You have to manage it. You have to come th- back to us and say how we're going to implement this. Because coming up with an idea and then giving it to me is not helping. You're just giving me a bigger workload. Yep. And it may be inconsistent with a bunch of other efforts, projects, norms. It's, it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting battle, but, but what I love is if I can get leaders to start to look at some of those practices that may be inhibiting if they're looking for growth, which most are, if they're looking for better service, which most are, it's, it's as if that that unfortunately is is an outcome of the relationship that you have with your employees and 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 that's sometimes shocking for leaders they they just don't think of the workplace that way and yet again all our great bosses did that very well do you think it's because um the concept of working in a company has kind of changed recently. You know, last, think of the last 10 years with the recession and, and people being downsized and the culture kind of got shattered in a lot of organizations and new people came in, new bosses came in and, and now we're kind of just crawling out of it, got some steam ahead and cultures are changing into more growth um growth centric and, and things like understanding culture and driving a culture and, and building a culture uh, are becoming way more important than they were uh, seven, eight years ago when we basically had to tear them down. I think I think you're right. And I think one of the one of the interesting things Merriam Webster announced in, in December that the culture that word the word of the year was culture, that there'd been enough interest in, enough research in, enough searches in looking at corporate culture, organizational culture, that they thought that was a the most important one of ten, uh, you know, terms of, of the year. And, and and what I think is true is what we found in looking at employee engagement, which is a huge, huge uh, passion of mine. Mine, even hot button of mine um, is that in in the 07, 08 with the recession that that people didn't move even if their bosses were coming from more of a fear place which which that recession was a significant financial impact on families, on communities, on industries, on nonprofits. It wasn't pretty for for a couple of years there, and and we're still, as you've said, starting to come out of it. So if cultures changed in that time frame, they got way more fear driven, which is it's not a fun place to be. And and what we saw was that talented players were less likely to leave organizations that they didn't feel trusted, honored, respected in because they weren't sure that another job would be right there for the taking or if it would be better for them from a safety, inspiration, engaging, God forbid, fun kind of a workplace. And and what we really began to see a couple of years ago is talent began to move very proactively because the economy was doing better, because there were better jobs out there. They didn't have to stay in an environment that was so difficult and, and not fun and not engaging for them. And so I think, you know, I'm not sure if it's chicken or the egg, you know, has, has the talent move losing talented players caused leaders to begin to pay more attention maybe has has the fact that 
you know, the economy is doing better and yet maybe service isn't as good as it once was. Or, you know, the kind of pushback from employees is that, you know, we used to do this and this and this and we don't do that anymore. And we're, we've grown so much. I don't even know everybody's names. There's some really interesting ways that people start to point out that the culture's different. And and I think what what again is is the core challenge is leaders may not quite know what to do to make it different, make it better. They're not as confident with that. They don't have demonstrated skills in proactive culture management. <laughs> and and that's kind of what I what I what I build. That's that's what I do is I help them realize that you know, if you're if you're the head of a of a shoe department in a retailer, or if you're the head of a multinational, there's a period of time, there's an amount of time a week that you ought to be spending just connecting with the quote front line and connecting with kind of the experience that those employees have, because that's what they go home and talk at dinner about to their spouses, their friends, their kids, and wow, what kind of buzz is that? It may not be a good buzz. It might be a great buzz, but it could be you know, I, I I just don't feel like people care anymore. I don't feel like people listen to me anymore. It's pretty interesting. Well, and it's pretty critical too. I mean, if you're not getting that, you know, one of the things that ticks me off the most is you get these surveys and they're open surveys and it's like, eh, and like I have time to do this. So that the actual function of, you know, doing these things and reaching out to uh, the employees and, and the different department heads, a lot of times uh, they don't respect it. They don't get it. So I wanted to ask you, especially because we're going to dig down into the book in a sec, and that's really what this book's all about. How does a culture uh, evolve? And I don't want to see the word, say the word change because after reading the book, it's more like you evolve a culture. It's not like, oh, Monday, we're like this. Tuesday, we're, we're different. It just doesn't work. It does not, and it's and it's it's a it's a, what I look to is kind of help leaders to start to look at this as a refinement process. We're going to keep all the cool stuff, or we're going to scale cool stuff, or we're going to identify pieces that. You know, even back then, 20 years ago, it may not be perfect today, but you can do something similar that really is going to help employees feel trusted, honored, respected consistently. But there may be some new elements of the culture that you need to add. And and my view is, is I don't know what the right mix is. I don't know what values you should have. I don't know what valued behaviors you should have. And again, we'll get into some more detail on this in a bit. But But what I do know is that if you are not pleased with the way people treat each other today, then there's a need for a shift. <laughs> and and is it and the culture change language, Bob, you're so right, is sometimes that's seen as but a bit a bit of a buzzword. But the the other piece of it is is that many leaders today have never experienced successful culture change, much less led one. So you kind of throw the culture change thing out there, and it's like mm, here's a boat with a big hole in it. It's just it's not going to be pretty. And so what I try and do is have people realize that as you start to change the rules. And, and it's truly where I go with this is, is you begin to change the rules so people can actually use their skills and leverage their ideas and work cooperatively. You're actually going to make more money. I've got, I've got hard dollar data that's scary. That's wonderfully scary, but it's going to take you 18 to 24 months to do it. And, and you're going to have to pay attention to the culture that whole time. 
you can't you can't kind of say okay so here's here's our current culture and here's our desired culture we're going to do these 25 things different starting thursday you're right it's just it just doesn't happen that way because what happens is that there's not sustainability there's not continued modeling of those new ideas by those c-suite leaders or the head of my department or what have you and it's just a it's an announcement that will fail and we'll keep on doing what we've always been doing yeah, I've always noticed that in, in any organization I've been in, when they brought in the uh, expert to to just have like sessions, right? And you you invest three days, and it is an investment. Um, and, and you do a bunch of stuff, and you do the whiteboards and sticky notes, and all it's all it's all a lot <laughs> Charts of fun. everywhere. Yeah, and then you know you make your manifesto or whatever. At the end of it, the person leaves, and there's no follow up. It's like blah, and then nothing. It's it's a it's a broken way of doing it. It doesn't make any sense at all and it's happened many many times and it's happening right now as we're speaking it is absolutely and and there's such a comfort with training we're gonna we're gonna do a training and so we're gonna build some skills we're gonna make it obvious what skills are needed and then because they've gone through the training they will immediately embrace all of these behaviors no they won't they won't until the rules change and the way you change rules is you actually enforce the new rules you model the new rules you demonstrate the new rules you actually give them some space so that the leaders become credible isn't that a key word? Champions of the new way. And and it's it's so fun to get leaders involved in that. Now, they push back pretty hard out of, out of the gate because I'm forcing them to do something they haven't had to do before. They're not comfortable with that culture, role champion kind of responsibility. It's like your best bosses did a great job of it. You've already seen it. So this is we're not we're not going to ask you to let go of 100% of the things you're doing now. We're going to ask you to tweak 5%, but it's going to be the right 5%. So my job is not only to help those leaders reframe a bit. Here's here's a culture that would work for us better. It's going to work for our customers better. It's going to be way better for our employees. You know, how how can that how can that not be a good thing? But I help them for a year or two afterwards in a role of a <laughs> consultant that says you guys promised to have this done by last Thursday. Where are you at? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's it's it is. It's purely the sustainability is only going to happen if the leaders get positive feedback when they're aligned and when they stray, when they fall back on on their comfortable ways to say, remember, we promised, we promised, and you're doing great. You know, don't don't let this drop because if it drops, it's going to be very difficult for anything you offer in the future to have any credibility whatsoever. Well, not only that is, is you know, if you drop the ball for a week or, or whatever, you lose a lot of momentum. And, you know, it's the 80-20 rule. It takes 80% of your energy to get it up and moving and only 20 to keep it going. And if you drop it down, you're suddenly, it's like, oh, damn, now I've got to put 80% and I don't have time for the 80%. And then it gets dropped again and again. And then suddenly it's just been a colossal waste of time. And yeah, you lose credibility. You've raised people's hopes that it's going to be better, and then and then you, it's not. Yeah, and then and then it's worse because then they're back to where they were they were disgruntled before. But you showed them a big shiny object, and then you've taken it away. It's like, hang on, hang on. I now I'm totally pissed off that I'm working in these <laughs> exactly. conditions. So it's yeah, it's it's you do it or don't do it. 
but you know, and if you're not doing it, you're not going to be around anyway. So it's really true. It's really true. And and what what's key to that whole sustainability reinforcement accountability piece is that I go in typically with senior leaders for a couple of days, and we use the Culture Engine book as the entire quote workbook of our session. It's set up as a as a working journaling kind of a tool to take you through these these best practices and this this proven framework. But I'm only making promises to the senior leaders in the room, and sometimes that's senior leaders of a division, or it might be senior leaders of a company, or it might be the business owners and their three leaders in a, in a small business. But if I get those folks in a room, then I say, here's what this is going to require. Do not do this if you're not willing to invest the next 12 months. And they look at me like, no, we can just tell them, no, no, you really can't. And that's okay that you believe that now, but I'm here to help you realize that these tweaks that are truly little 10% shifts in the way things are done are only going to stick if you are credible, if you are consistent, if you don't tolerate bad behavior anymore. And they and they start to realize that they're, I'm actually redefining what effective leadership looks like. It's not just about stuff out the door. It is about the creation of a work environment that's actually fun and healthy and productive. Well, it's almost like you're making an uh, an organization or a company grow up and become an adult. <laughs> it's true. It is true, and it, and it's not like they. I really, I really don't look at leaders at all as being not good, because God love you. You've been working your butts off. And everybody does. Everybody works hard in all kinds of organizations, but they just miss that quality of the workplace environment and how much benefit they can get out of it. A, less stress, B, more money, (laughs) way more fun, way better service experiences, way more creative problem solving. And, And they just haven't had the chance to see it. So I really see my role as educating. Well, you got to get them to a tipping point, like where they say, aha, oh, and then they're kind of running on their own and then you can step away and it be juggernauts from there. It does. It does. But they have to embrace it. I can't, I can't be at the tiller. They have to be. Well, they, they what they'll do is they'll, they'll embrace it because you, uh, for use of a better word, bully it through. Uh, it's true. And, and then they're describing, okay, okay. And, uh, and then, and then things start to go their way and they go, oh, that wasn't so bad. And then, you know, they have to grow into it. Um, and sometimes that takes a long time. It does. And, and you know, what's interesting is that sometimes the, the decision for the senior leaders to kind of look at this, uh, that, that it's something important to do. Every, everybody in the organization knows exactly how the culture operates. And, and to some extent, most humans are help, uh, kind of willing to help, very hopeful that it'll get better, right? But, but what's interesting is sometimes the population of the employees is so ripe for this that you begin, these are the values we're going to live by. We're not going to tolerate anger and frustration and cussing or whatever it is anymore. We're just not going to tolerate that anymore. And in a couple of three weeks, all of a sudden you get people solving problems that have been around for years, and they just weren't willing because it's like, if you don't care, if you're creating this environment that's so difficult for me, I'm not going to fix this for you. Screw it. And and they can be so ripe for the change. And it's like, well, finally, now you trust me to do this? Okay, I'll do this. And you get turnarounds that are remarkable. 
And, and that's the fun part. That's, that's the gratifying part of having you realize that, you know, if you want employees to apply discretionary energy, oh, then you better treat them well. You better treat them consistently well. <laughs> you better treat them with respect. You better not lie, cheat, and steal in any fashion. It's keeping, it's keeping your promises and living the values. And it's amazing how much more engaged and involved your employees become in solutions. It's wild. It's totally wild. Let's talk a little bit about the, the, the structures because you've kind of hinted on it before, almost a workbook structure. Is it a type of book that you can get away kind of reading the beginning, maybe the first chapter, and then skipping around into sections? Or is it kind of one that you have to start almost at the forward and go all the way to the end? It's really designed, there's, there's a logical progression. And so it's, it's designed to take you through at your own pace. Uh, if you're a leader of a team, if you're a leader of a division, if you're a leader of a company, it basically takes you through proven phases so that the foundation is built so the next phase can actually have some hope of actually <laughs> grabbing on, right, of, of gaining some success, of building kind of upon the traction that you've already built. And so one of the, one of the keys is I set some context with, you know, what's an organizational constitution and why should you care? You know, so there's a little bit of the success stories from, from some of my clients and, and, uh, some pretty impressive numbers and, and pretty impressive results in a short period of time. And then it says, now it's about you, because as a leader, you need to be very clear that this is important to you. And it's not just a little project that you don't care if it you know, takes hold or not, that this is about your purpose in life. Ooh, that's interesting. What are your values in life? What behaviors are you modeling if you're living those values? And then what's your leadership philosophy? Because people, by the way, know you're stinking leadership philosophy by the way you behave with them every day. But you might want to look at, really, am I in a position of service? And the answer is always yes. And then, well, then congratulations. Then you need to figure out if you're serving. And the best way to know if you're serving is to ask. <laughs> and <laughs> you're going to get some opinions that, well, this was service kind of oriented. This was really dumb. I don't know why you did that. And and some of it's education while we had competing priorities. There's all kinds of interesting ways of looking at this. But if you're going to position yourself as the proactive champion of your ideal culture, you you got to be pretty firm in understanding who you are as a person, what you believe as a person, and how this is a logical extension of your own beliefs and your own values. And all of a sudden, it's not a tactical thing to do. It's the right thing to do. So, could you jump around and then start to look at, well, we're going to play with our strategies and goals first? Well, the reality is that in most organizations, that's the it's the closest thing that you have that's done because there's such a common and not surprising focus upon performance. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. That can help you make money. It can help you deliver on promises, et cetera. But it's how people have learned to to deliver on those things. There may be some pushback and some bending of rules and, and that's and that may not be the culture you want. So it really is designed to do why don't we do the first phase first, because then the second phase will have a shot of succeeding. 
Now, you know, and, and because this is this is a, a very reflective thing, like you've got to, you know, kind of read a chapter and then read it again and then answer some questions and go, oh, hang on, I'm not sure, and then read it a third time type of thing. This isn't something you can do by yourself or with just your C-suite. You have to have some sort of inside, uh, outside influence coming in and saying, okay, I'm going to help lead this thing. Now, obviously, you do that, but if you already have like a, a business coach that you have a relationship with, could you just get the book and then give it to him and say, look, we really love what's going on in this book. Can you help us get through the book? What do you recommend? Absolutely. And, and I think you're right. I think what, what is really um, my core intent with the book was to not withhold any secrets, to basically say, this is what you have to do. And, and these are some givens. And if you don't do the givens, this is really not going to stick. And you're teaching the pig to saying it's going to be exhausting for you. The outcome's not good. You know, all that kind of stuff. But if you do these givens, you're going to have some traction that's going to surprise you. That's going to be very cool. But that outside perspective, that ability to have a coach, a, a, a guide, someone to say, I know you think you were crystal clear on that, on that conference call. You were not. Let's listen and let's, here's where you got as close as, as I think you could get to saying exactly what you want, but you didn't say it clearly. I, I wouldn't have left that meeting knowing exactly what you want me to do. And it's like, oh, so would we love leaders to be able to open themselves up to that kind of honest feedback on their own? Sure. But very few of us are able to do that. And it's that outside expertise, that outside guidance that can give you the reality, right? Your intentions actually don't matter much. It's how are you actually being perceived? How is your message being transmitted? And we kind of need truth tellers to to help us really understand that. And it, and it does cause more reflection. You're exactly right. Um, and, and the other element of this is that as you start down this path, you're going to invite feedback from your employee population. You're going to be inviting their perceptions of, okay, so we're going to put values in place. We're going to define them in measurable behavioral terms. Then the next step is you actually ask employees to rate you. On the degree to which you are living these 12 values or 15 values, don't do more than that. But but it's how well are those behaviors being embraced? That's, that's a very vulnerable place to go. But it's the only way you can shift from, this is how I'm intending to lead this company and to lead this team. And I'm not doing it right. I'm not, it's not getting through. So I've got to I've got to refine what I do. So so that's that. You're exactly right. Having an outside perspective, that trusted truth teller, is is a vitally important uh, practice for for any leaders. I wanted to ask you, you know, you've mentioned several times uh, ROI, you know, what are the actual monetary values? And the reason I ask that is like, you know, somebody in an organization that's way down the ladder might read this book and say, oh my God, this would be perfect for the organization. When they pitch it to their boss or when uh, a senior manager pitches it to C-suite, they need some killer ammo. So can we talk a little bit about the potential ROI of doing something like this? 
Absolutely. And, and what's really interesting is that, you know, there is being a management consultant, being an executive consultant, being an executive coach. You know, I see this over, over 25 years worth of, of professional application and it's obvious to me. But again, I'm bringing ideas into a leader's head, hopefully their heart as well that are just unique. They're different. They haven't been taught how to pay attention to, to quality of interactions. And, and the first question comes is, why would I do this, right? I know that if I pay attention to skill application and it's the bullwhip or it's the yelling or it's the whatever, we get crap out the door every day. And that's kind of, if I, if I let that go for a moment to do any of this kumbaya culture stuff, then I feel I'm putting at risk the number of widgets out the door, the services that we're delivering. And the reality is, and this has been so consistent, um, started started this in, in, in uh, the late 90s uh, and being very much more intentional about the measurement of it, which, so I'm slow, but I got there eventually. So what we found with clients who embrace our proven framework, and this is again, phased, Phase one, phase two, phase three, and it's really about defining your ideal culture, kind of getting clear and, and engaging people in what that kind of next culture is going to look like and what are we going to carry from the current one. We define that. We then align practices. That's the longest. And then you may periodically at the you know two-year mark or whatnot start to refine some of the behaviors because there's new things you need to pay attention to. So it's that define align, refine, leaders look at that as like, that's a lot of time and energy. Why would I go there? So the bottom line is 40 plus percent increase in employee engagement in typically eight to 18 months. That's a huge, huge gain in employee engagement. And that is that is kind of the individual employee, no matter where they are. That individual employee could be the senior VP of finance. And their engagement goes up as well. So it's not just, you know, don't think of just frontline. The second metric that is consistent is a 40% boost in the customer experience. Customer satisfaction goes up by 40% or more in 18 months. And the big one is a 35% jump in results and profits. That's pretty Those are big numbers, dude. They are. And they're totally, totally consistent. It's just wonderful. And I get feedback from, I've got some government clients, been working with some armed forces clients, and they kind of look at me like, you know, don't, don't. The profit thing isn't, isn't key for us because we're in a we're in a different world kind of my nonprofit clients know profits really big and it's like you know full well if you if you misbehave with a budget that that budget's going to be impacted you know the next year around or the next five-year cycle whatever it is and so it's then then just look at the performance gains if you had a 30 35 percent boost in performance they'd like oh yeah That'd be worth it. And it's it's almost, Bob, counterintuitive because what I'm asking them to do is to quit doing what they've been doing from a purely managing performance series of behaviors, activities, conversations, <laughs> whips, you know, ice cream, everything, everything, you know, that they throw at, at employees to manage that performance to say, you don't actually need to do that. What you need to do is pay attention to the quality of the work experience, to the quality of the work environment, 
And engaged employees will treat your customers better than ever. And not surprisingly, they will craft a work environment where you'll get the results you want and you'll make more money. Well, and, and you know, this book is basically a system. The reason you're going to get consistent results is because it's a system. It works on any level. If you have a script and you do the script enough times, you will get results and you'll get consistent results. And really, that is what business is, is creating um, a series of actions that create a consistent result so you can do matrices on it so then you, you can gauge where your profitability is. That's it. I mean, I mean, sorry. Sorry to take all the, the flashy logos and everything away. And, you know, I'm coming from the design side. It's like, guys, it's just that. So, yeah, you've got to have a systems-oriented business. And this is, I mean, and it's very rare because there's lots of people saying, oh, you have to change your culture. You have to change your culture. you got to do this and that, and it's wonderful. But, okay, great. So how do we do it? So, oh, well, you know, it's a secret. Or, oh, you know, you can't do that. That with this proven framework, that was the right answer. That's why this is attractive. And it is a system. And it's, and in essence, what I'm trying to do is to have leaders realize that, that the systems they have in place for managing performance and results, perfect, good for you. you you're not going to diminish those in any way, but you're going to need to craft a similar black and white dashboard style metric approach to the quality of your work environment. And they look at me like the RCA dog. Now, for some of our listeners, they may not remember that kind of <laughs> iconic branding look, but it's like, if, if the dog's confused, they're going to give you the turned head and it's like, the heck are you talking about? And it's, if we can make values as observable, tangible, measurable as your performance metrics, now we got a system that you can work within. You already know how to manage systems to dashboards. We're just going to give you another vitally important, equally important as performance dashboard. And that's values and citizenship. When you were putting this book together, and you know, you come from a, a wealth of experience, you've done this a million times, um, and, and you, it, something happens when you've got it in your brain and you put it on paper, just something happens. And I call it the aha moment when when somebody writes down something that they know has been a truth for many, many, many years and they go, oh my gosh, now I totally get that. So for you, what was your aha moment? I'm sure there was many, but what was the one that really stood out for you? You know what, what was really the vital first sales pitch for this idea was was to my publisher. You know, not surprisingly, I mean, they're, they're in a very interesting business that you talk about, and I'm a musician on the side, and you talk about how, how technology and the internet has changed the music business over the past 20 years. It has had a significant changing influence on the global publishing industry as well. So, so you got a top five publisher that's you know, they, they get a few proposals a day. So why would this proposal be relevant and interesting, uh, potential for them? Because they have to make money too. They are a business too. And so for me, it was, I spent twice the time on the proposal that I did on the writing of the book was a breeze. And, and I admit, we just spoke about the need for a <laughs> truth teller. So I hired a guy, uh, a gentleman named Mark Levy at Levy Innovation. Be happy to 
talk to anybody about what Mark Levy does. He's a brand strategist and he helped me find my voice because I had, Bob, as you can imagine, I had so many different avenues I could go. I had so many different tools that I thought would kind of shift this. Now I had this proven framework, but it was Mark's questions and Mark's reflection and his pushing me to say, this is your big idea. The big idea, and it's, it's the systemic approach that you just described. He said the organizational constitution, there have been references to things like that for, oh, centuries. Let's go back to the Magna Carta. But this is a tactical, proven approach. So for me, once, and it was not my language, I am proud to say Mark threw that language at me first. <laughs> but as soon as I got that idea, as soon as he gave me those two words, it was like, it's exactly what I'm doing. And we talked a great deal about, I'm changing the rules. They're liberating rules. But what it took was to have that idea and all of a sudden, <laughs> you know, the right examples just popped to the surface. I had thousands of stories, but... I needed to have the right stories and I needed to have examples of the language. How do you make a behavioral value? How do you, how do, you do that? Well, I've been doing it for 25 years. I had to have it fit that concept. So for me, and God love Mark, Mark Levy, uh, it was his guidance, his pushing me to not stay in the general, but to get in the very tangibly specific. So for me, once I had that language, the proposal was easy, the chapter rollouts were easy, uh, had a couple of pub publishers look at it. Um, first editor was just blown away at, at the first 10 pages. And that's kind of what you got to do. But it was all about that idea. And so I knew that with Mark's help, again, I needed an outside truth teller to say, that's not your big idea. <laughs> so over here is your big, see this thing with all the neon and the lights and all the people cheering. I would go there, you know, if I was you, <laughs> it was really fun, but, but it, it, it became so simple for me to be able to, again, plug in the right story, show, show the enough of the systemic process that's going to support these new demands, these new expectations. And, and, and to be honest, just last week, I was, I was in Chicago with 300 business owners and, and the language of the organizational constitution, they were from all over the globe. So it's not, it's not a, an American term. It was, oh, well, I can do that. I'm just changing the rules. I'm formalizing things, uh-oh, that I have to live first, right? But that, that was the key for me. Now, I wanted to ask you, um, this is a little different, but how, how do you, if you're going in there and you're, you're thinking of joining an organization, how do you define their culture? How do you figure out their culture? Because, yeah, in which, oh, you ask certain questions, but I don't really think that's what you're going to get. Um, because I think that's critical. Do you, do, you, do you tell them, say, oh, this is the type of culture I'm looking for? Or does that kind of say, ah, oh, well, we don't want to work with you because you don't get it. Um, so what would, what tactically, what would you recommend to people? 
Well, I think I think it's vitally important that that an employee, be it a senior leader, be it a, a frontline player, uh, anything in between, be very intentional about the culture they're going to fit into. Because as they get more savvy, and an individual employee can read this book and get way, way more understanding of, oh, that's what my best boss did. Oh, that's not what my boss is doing now, you know? And and I think what's interesting and what I believe to be a, a huge benefit of some of the transparency that the internet has provided us is that there's some pretty good reason I believe reasonably reliable information on websites like glassdoor.com because you can go in and look to see in glassdoor I would imagine there are some companies that aren't listed that don't have the employee population where folks have actually added you know kind of their perceptions over the years but for many organizations it's there and they, and there's a, a rating of uh, how's the pay uh, how how's how's the culture is the culture one of kind of uh, aggression and competition or is it one of fun and cooperation there's some cool terminology you can use there there's quotes from employees about i trust the senior leader is heading us in the right direction right Th this is a direction a strategy that makes sense to me uh, this woman is believable she's approachable there's there's some pretty cool data you can do um, the other thing that i think is is within every employee's right is to say yes you're interviewing me but i'm interviewing you too and here's here's what i want to know i want to know how you know how people treat each other i want to know how you know, customers are seen. You know, can I can I hang out for a couple of days next week, and just talk to anybody in the cafeteria? And it's like, you know, if if an organization says no, there might be very good reasons for that. There could be. There's all kinds of interesting security things that happen in organizations. I totally totally support that. But wouldn't it be great if you could actually self-select? some players to get information from, um, to, to do kind of a panel interview, to really ask to meet the team members you're going to be working with. And, and to be able to, in essence, it, it's such an interesting dynamic and it's kind of classic command and control where, where you know, here's this organization and there's, there's leaders there. They're the ones that are hiring. I am a cog in the wheel and I'm simply going to go in and hope that they give me a chance. And it's like, yeah, you are interviewing, but you also don't want to find that after you invest this time and energy that, that this is a, a culture that's inconsistent with your values, that it's going to ask you to do things that you've feel are are bending rules or unethical in any way that's not going to play out well so so my my belief is and there's some there's a cool cool site called worldblue blu.com that also does um assessment on the degree of of employee involvement they call it democracy so you can look at organizations like WD-40, who I highly, highly regard. I interview uh, President CEO Gary Ridge in the book, um, Zappos, another one of those organizations that gets a lot of attention, Southwest Airlines. There's, there, you know, for bigger organizations like that, there's a lot more data points available. 
but World Blue, again, BLU.com, uh, might have, uh, it's got the winners, and it's got like 40 organizations a year that, that are seen as very democratic, and that might be something that uh, can help employees begin to say, mm, yeah, yeah, this, this is, this is going to be something that I'm, that I'm going to pursue. And uh, to some degrees, and I think back to my, my best boss in my, in my YMCA nonprofit executive days, uh, I met my best boss probably three years before I worked for him because he was doing development programs. So I met him in you know one of the career development trainings, and and <laughs> I had such a ball over three days. I went up to him and at the at the last of the the final day, and I said, "Jerry, I'm going to work for you someday." And he said, "Thanks for the warning, kid." You know, it was just <laughs> awesome. But but I realized that the leaders that I was living with had a different philosophy, had different behaviors, uh, had different beliefs. And I thought, you know, these are nice people, but that's the guy I want to work for. And it took me three years to go find that job, and it was well worth it. I spent my last uh, four of my last five years uh, working for Jerry, and uh, uh, it was worth every second of it. So sometimes we got to shop and and be patient. Um, and there's other times when you know we're so miserable, it's such a disconnect that we shouldn't wait. The Culture Engine, a framework for driving results, inspiring your employees, and transforming your workplace. And I've had Chris Edmonds on the line today. Chris, thanks for being on the show. It was awesome. Absolutely appreciate it. I so appreciate your your interest in, in culture and, and giving me this opportunity to, to spout off about this stuff I'm very passionate about. Thanks for listening to the show. And don't forget to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. Like us at Facebook forward slash Business Book Talk. Follow the host on Twitter at Bob Garlic. Visit the website businessbooktalk.com for show notes and lots of other great interviews. See you next week.